So, are we all done with book three now? Uh, sort of not. Does that does that mean sort? Of, and what does close mean? Close in some kind of Spencerian way, yeah. which might mean that Spencer himself was close to finishing the 24 books of the Fairy Queen. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, so basically you're saying you read the first three cantos. I gotcha. <laughs> Okay, well, you know, that's Spencer for you. Um, but the, those who have finished book three, how many have? I mean, honestly now? <laughs> okay, so look, um, let's do the quiz after break on book three because we're going to talk about it. You know, book three is great. If, you've, if you're past halfway through, which um, I'm going to squint and see just hands, profiles. Past halfway through? I can't even see you. I don't know. I can't see you. Okay, good. So it sounds like a lot of your past halfway through. You, look, you already have a sense of how weird and wonderful book three is, right? Um, a universal roar of assent greeted this um, um, resolution. Uh, can I get a witness? How wonderful is book three? It's good. Good. All right. Good. Um, so glad to have a witness. I feel like I, if I were Obama, my re-election would be in the bag. Um, that kind of enthusiasm, man, the Tea Party cannot, <laughs> cannot hope to match that kind of enthusiasm. Um, okay. Um, book three is weird. It's wonderful. Britta Mart is um, unlike the... Um, real prig and the semi-prig that we've dealt with in the first two books. Um, Spencer obviously is in love with her, um, the way writers fall in love with their characters. Um, and that's a great thing. And um, it's therefore worthwhile spending um, more time on book three. Um, spending time on book four is a way of spending time on book three because book four is just is, is just continues um, the story of book three. It's not. It's the first time that um, a book in the Fairy Queen simply continues the story rather than just having a kind of transition from one story to another. Guyon, Red Cross meets Guyon, and now we deal with Guyon. Guyon meets Britomart, and now we deal with Britomart. Um, in book four, um, Britta Mart is maybe supposed to meet someone else, but Spencer says, man, you know, let's just stick with Britta Mart. Um, finally, in book five, he manages to rip his attention away from Britta Mart to talk about Artigal. Um, but then, well, really, Britta Mart. Um, and uh, and um, it's only in book six that we're done with Britta Mart. So really, books, books three through five of The Fairy Queen, um, Britta Mart is at the center of them. She's not quite as central in book five as she is in books three and four, but she's central in all of them. Um, all of this as being a way of saying that uh, we're slowing down in book three, and that's good, and we do have um, uh, snow days to, to redo, plus those catch-up week times. So mm -hmm. what we were talking about um, yesterday was um, was Britta Mart's being wounded by Gardante? Can people again recall the um, six stages of seduction as named by knights? Gardante followed by... Gardante. Oh, you wrote it down. Good. Jocante, <laughs> Basiante, Bacante, and Noctante. Right. Um, 
And uh, so Britta Mart, she's, um, she's chastity, but she does get um, messed up by um, looking. And then that kind of gets um, clarified or explained or put into um, a reasonable um, ex explanatory framework <clears throat> when we get to um, Canto Two where we find out that, that Britomart um, has fallen in love with an image that she sees in a mirror. The wondrous, if you look at the argument to book two, which is page 402, um, the Red Cross Knight to Britomart describeth Artigal, whom she's asking about but pretending she's not interested in. Um, oh, this guy Artigal, he's a jerk, isn't he? Well, I know, he's really wonderful. Oh, come on, I don't believe it. Prove it to me. Um, that's a kind of proto-Shakespearean conversation that they're having. Um, Shakespeare learned as much from Spencer as from anyone. Um, and um, so Artigal describes, uh, I mean, uh, Red Cross describes Artigal. And then we hear the story about the wondrous mirror, which is spelled M-Y-R-R-H-O-U-R. Um, the wondrous mirror by which she, in love with him, did fall. So I'm just going to suggest right now that the reason for that spelling is that it's a pun or a portmanteau word. Do people know what portmanteau words are? From what are they, Steve? Uh, doesn't it just like really link to two words and combine their meaning? Yeah, and it's the, the, the term portmanteau word was invented by Lewis Carroll. Um, <coughs> In, ja and it's, uh, Jabberwocky. in Jabberwocky. Um, and the idea is um, the, the, a famous portmanteau word which has just become part of our language, but Carol actually invented, was chortle. Um, Geyer and gimbal. Geyer and gimbal. And it's basically you take two words and you stuff them together um, the, way, uh, you, the, the way you would, you would have a traveling um, uh, suitcase, is, is how, um, it, how Carol describes it. So mirror hour is a kind of portmanteau word. It's, a, it's two words um, condensed together into one. Of course it means mirror, but the two words that you would notice immediately are hour for time. Um, that is that time, which is the center of book three of the Fairy Queen. Were it not that time their troubler is. So time is the great troubler of things in book three of the Fairy Queen, as we will see when we look at the Garden of Adonis. Um, time makes all things change. That's the first thing we talked about when we talked about the mutability cantos, is mutability um, <coughs> describes how nothing will last through time. Um, everything changes, nothing lasts. So time is um, a major theme of the Fairy Queen as a whole, and it is placed at the very center of book three of the Fairy Queen as the troubler of the Garden of Adonis, because short time comes, soon comes with his consuming sickle. We already saw that in the Bower of Bliss. Um, so the word mirror gets a sense of the word time. It also gets myrrh. And um, Arabian myrrh is one of the Avidian stories, the story of Mira who was metamorphosed into myrrh, is one of the Ovidian stories um, that gets described in um, Book Three of the Fairy Queen, and that's something that we'll talk about, why, why 
um, Britta Mart should find some kind of reflection of her own story in the story of Mur, of Mira, of uh, Mira who becomes Mur. Um, you might think at first that Narcissus would be um, a story to think about um, because she falls in love with a mirror image. And that mirror image is himself so much a mirror image that his name is Artigal. That is, he is the mirror, the equal, the, um, the, the, the counterpart of Arthur. Art equals. Art égal. That's French for equals Arthur. Um, so she falls in love with the mirror image, if not of herself, then of someone whose very existence is to be a mirror image, to be the mirror of Arthur. Um, all of these are ideas that Spencer is playing with. Um, none of them should be literalized, but what he wants are all these resonances, all these kind of subliminal um, connections being made in your mind. Um, so I'm just pointing that out. Um, so um, she falls in love with him through the mirror, and that has already been, um, or that does explain why she's wounded by Gardante. It's looking um, and falling in love simply through looking. Um, now, another major um, Ovidian story that we get in Book Three of the Fairy Queen are the tapestries. We first get them on the tapestries that Britta Mart sees at the beginning of Book Three. There's a lot of visual art. There's something, um, there's a mode that some of you will know, which is called ekphrasis, a poetic mode called ekphrasis. Um, how many people know what that means, ekphrasis? Um, are you not nodding? I am I nodding. You are nodding. What is ekphrasis? Ekphrasis is when one mode of art describes another mode of art within it. Yeah. And in poetry in particular, what ekphrasis is, is a poem describing a piece of visual art. Um, sometimes a real piece, sometimes not. Um, the, oh, where is that band? The Shield of Achilles in the Iliad is um, the earliest surviving piece of ekphrasis. Uh, Homer goes on about the shield for about 100 lines. Um, it's an amazing description of something that couldn't possibly exist because the level of detail would require um, microscopic vision as well as a shield the size of the water tower in order for it all to fit. Um, but um, the description of the shield is an ekphrastic description. Um, and it's a description of a piece of visual art. Keats, Keats's ode on a Grecian urn, um, where he describes what's on the urn. Some people, they think, some people think they know what urn he was talking about. Others say, no, there is no um, urn that actually matches Keats's description. So it might be a poem which is an ekphrastic description of a real urn, or it might be a poem which is an ekphrastic description of an imaginary urn. But the point is, it's a, it's a very interesting mode in poetry where a poem tries to get you to picture a different kind of work of art, namely a work of visual art. Spencer does that in the House of Bucerain, and he does it earlier with the tapestries. What is depicted on the tapestry? Sorry, Venus, the story of Venus and Adonis, which some of you will know Shakespeare then took up again as one of his two long narrative poems, um, a poem almost no one reads, but he should, um, called Venus and Adonis. Um, what 
oh what is the story of Venus and Adonis? Anyone know the story? Alright, who's Venus? The goddess of love, known in Greek as Aphrodite. Um, good. Mother of, as it happens, Aeneas. Um, and the person who's on the side of the Trojans in the um, Trojan War. Why? Because Paris sided with her. Because Paris sided with her. So Paris. She gave him the love of Helen, and then he ran away with Helen, and then so she's on. Right. Is this new to people, or am I reminding? Are we reminding you when we say this? Uh, sorry. For everyone. I mean, if it's new to you, you should know it in somewhat more detail. But the judgment of Paris was he gives the golden apple um, to Venus as the fairest of the goddesses um, because she prompt, she bribes him with Helen of Troy. Um, this causes um, to use the Roman names which Virgil used and which which um, Spencer used. This causes Minerva and um, and Juno to stay uh, to be on the Greek side rather than the Roman side because they're angry at Paris. Um, the result is, and this is of central importance to um, later European um, uh, uh, epic tradition um, from Dante onwards. The result is that Virgil writes about how even though the Greeks defeated the Trojans in the Iliad, the Trojans were the winners in the end because they fled from Troy, they went to Italy where they established Rome. And so um, Aeneas is the great hero who established Rome and the establishment of Rome. Um, um, Rome eventually conquered Greece and Rome became the greatest civilization the world had ever seen and Greece was one of its provinces. Um, so, uh, so they got their comeuppance, the Greeks. Um, Juno wasn't happy about this, but, um, but Jupiter made sure that it happened. And Ovid tells the story, as does Virgil. Um, that story became very important to national myth-making all over Europe. So what you started getting were epic poems in different countries where what Virgil did for Italy and for Rome, other poets did for their own countries. So there were poems about another hero who escaped Troy, and Virgil, Virgil gives some war into this because he talks about some of the other escapees from, from the destruction of Troy. But another hero who escaped Troy, instead of going to Italy, went to France. And then, so France is a new Troy. France is, it's, Rome may have inherited some of, some of Troy's glory, but France inherited Troy's glory. Spain inherited Troy's glory. Um, one hero who escaped Troy was named Brutus, according to the English mythology. And Brutus went, <coughs> guess where, to Britain, who's, and Britain is named after Brutus. This isn't the Brutus who killed Julius Caesar. This is some other Brutus. Um, and what you will see is that London is frequently in the Fairy Queen called Troy Novant, which means New Troy. And the idea is that Britain is that the British are also descendants of the Trojans. And that Britain has this great classical heritage, that, that Britain can trace its heritage all the way back to Homeric times and to the Trojan War. 
and that the greatness of Britain is an inheritance of the greatness of Troy, just as the greatness of Rome was an inheritance of the greatness of Troy. Um, so at any rate, Venus is um, very deep in this, and because this is the book of chastity, it's also the book of love, um, Venus is um, going to be a central mythological figure within the book. So on the tapestries, we get the story of Venus and Adonis. So um, summarize that story um, in three lines. Okay. First of all, I think it's significant that no, Adonis... No, that's not three oh, lines. Okay. <laughs> okay. So she falls in love um, with Adonis. She convinces him to be with her. He's um, mortal. He's mortal, but she foresees that he will be killed on a hunt. He, she tells him not to go hunting. He goes hunting. A boar gores him in the groin, and he turns into a flower. Okay, so the, the crucial thing that you've left out, which is important, that's okay, is that Adonis, Venus, um, he basically collapses, and he's dying, but Venus doesn't want him to die. So she holds him in a kind of state of suspended animation, where he's unconscious, but alive. And his wound keeps bleeding, and it bleeds forever. And that wound turns into what? Do you know? Into a river. And um, is that why in Adonia, which is the, there's a holiday where they, or there's a Greek uh, mythological holiday where they would go and pick, women would pick flowers twice a year, and they would plant a garden in a basket, a garden of Adonis, oh. and then they would throw the flowers in the stream. Makes sense. I didn't know that. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Um, some people think that Adonis and Abnoi are actually connected. Um, that is, that the, the um, Mid-Eastern, the way that myth appears in the Mid-East is um, originally as, as um, the mythological figure of Adonoi, who later then, of course, becomes one of the um, aspects of the Hebrew god. Um, but the idea is, so Adonis um, is gored, um, he is neither living nor dead, um, he is wounded and his wound bleeds forever, kept in the state of half-life. Um, that, that bleeding wound is a fertile, becomes a fertile river. Um, so it's a, partly a, an origin story of the origin of this river. Some people think it's the River Tamas, um, but it's the origin of a river and the river fertilizes the land. So the death of Adonis, or the near death, um, the, the Adonis about to die, and perpetually about to die, perpetually wounded and perpetually bleeding, um, is the source, becomes the source of life for everything else. He's endlessly drained of his life through his wound, but that draining of life gives life um, and fertility to um, to the harvest and um, uh, to 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 sowing and reaping and to um, um, agricultural cycles um, from then on. The idea of a wounded figure producing um, the fertility that makes agriculture possible seems to be a universal human myth. Uh, you can find it in Vietnam also, completely independently of the story of Adonis. But it's more or less the same story a wound which fertilizes. And Spencer wouldn't have known that, I'm just remarking that. But the, the Greek-Roman Mideastern 
version of the myth is Adonis, and that's how Adonai becomes Lord, because he is the source of life. Um, that slowly morphs, but, but, and it's not clear that that's true, but um, some people uh, think that, it's, that it is, some people are, aren't sure, but it's a genuine possibility that they have the same, that the stories have the same root. Yeah. It's also connected to his mother because Mira also her tears become a perfume. Right, become yes, exactly. Um, the sap of the myrrh tree then becomes myrrh. So here you have two stories of wounding, and the and the um, uh, the fluid that flows from the wound then becomes um, something precious and valuable. Um, with the story of. Um, Venus and Adonis. Can you find where the tapestry is? Sorry, mm -hmm. with the story of Venus and Adonis, of course, the point is, okay, so love, you know, it's a story that makes sense mythologically, if you think about it, which is that the um, origin of fertility is love. Um, that's how we reproduce. Is, um, it's uh, Canto 1. Yeah, just give a page number. Oh, 393. Um... 393. Yeah. Uh, Arras and Tour. Yes. Um, and it's uh, 34. The walls were the walls were round about a parallel. This is in the Castle Joyous. The walls were round about a parallel with costly cloths of Arras and of Tour, which were famous for their um, for their tapestries, in which with cunning hand was Portra head, the love of Venus and her paramour, the fair Adonis turn it to a flower, or paramour flower, a work of rare device and wondrous wit. First did it show the bitter baleful stour which her essayed with many a fervent fit when first her tender heart was with his beauty smit. So the first tapestry shows her falling in love with Adonis. Then with what slates and sweet allurements she enticed the boy, as well that art she knew, and wooed him her paramour to be, now making garlands of each flower that grew to crown his golden locks with honor due, now leading him into a secret shade from his beau pairs, um, that is, his in-laws, um, and from bright heaven's view, where him to sleep she gently would persuade or bathe them in a fountain by some covert glade. So we already know what bathing in a fountain by some covert glade is meaning in Spencer. We saw it in book one of the Fairy Queen. That's what Red Cross does when he disarms. And whilst he slept, she over him would spread her mantle, colored like the starry skies, and her soft arm lay underneath his head, and with ambrosial kisses she would bathe his eyes. And whilst he bathed with her two crafty spies, that is, her eyes again, she secretly would search each dainty limb and throw into the well sweet rosemaries and fragrant violets and pansies trim. Who will pick this up? In Shakespeare, Rosemary—that's for remembrance. Who is that? Mm. Ophelia. Ophelia, yeah. Um, and ever with sweet nectar she did sprinkle him, so she did steal his heedless heart away, and joyed his love in secret, unespied. Who is she reminding you of? In earlier in the Fairy Queen. He's asleep, she's gazing at him, she's enjoying his love even as he's asleep, she's doting on him. Lacretia. Lacretia, yeah. This is, it's almost as though Spencer was doing the same scene but without the moral 
um, obloquy to it. Um, it tells you something about Acrasia that Spencer um, said, okay, I had to be against Acrasia at the end of book two, but let's do it again, um, and this time without making it something bad. Um, and she joined his love in secret, unespied, but for she saw him bent to cruel play to hunt the salvage beast in forest wide, dreadful of danger that mowed him betide, she oft and oft advised him to refrain. I don't know whether to tell you to notice oft and oft there for later on in book three, so I won't. Um, that was good enough. Um, she, she oft and oft advised him to refrain from chase of greater beasts whose brutish pride more breed, moat breed him save unwares, but all in vain. For who can shun the chance that destiny doth ordain? Next tapestry, lo, where beyond he lieth languishing, deadly and gored of a great wild boar. And by his side the goddess groveling makes for him endless moan. And then this is the crucial part. And evermore with her soft garment wipes away the gore which stains his snowy skin with hateful hue. But when she saw no help might him restore him to a dainty flower she did transmute, which in that cloth was wrought as if it lively grew. So the point is the gore, although Spencer doesn't quite say it there, he expects you to know, the gore that flows out of Adonis, um, she keeps wiping away and it keeps coming. And that is going to... So that... Now, one thing that happens in Book 3 of The Fairy Queen is that we get an ekphrastic moment. Here's a picture. And then Spencer has a very, both Spencer and Milton, but in very different ways, have very cinematic imaginations. And what's going to happen is this thing, which is just decoration in Castle Joyous, is going to come to life. That is, Adonis and Venus and this whole issue is going to come to life in another three or four cantos. And the coming to life of something that we first saw as decoration, that's a really interesting thing for Spencer to do. I mean, it's just interesting by itself. It's cool. It, it, we always like it when that happens, uh, when we see pictures in the first act of a movie, um, but then later on we see the reality of those things, and it turns out they weren't just decoration, they really mattered. Um, but in this case, in a case of allegory, it's almost as though Spencer is saying, all of this is just supposed to be, that's what I said in the letter to Raleigh, all of this is just supposed to be um, a depiction of an inner truth that didn't need this outward um, artfulness. But then the outward artfulness comes to life. That's what book three is about, is that that outward artfulness comes to life. And that's almost Spencer saying allegorically, this is an allegory about um, how the allegory comes to life and stops being an allegory. Um, the great Ovidian story of that, of course, is um, the story of Galatea, Pygmalion um, bringing, uh, making the sculpture of Galatea and then that sculpture coming to life after Pygmalion falls in love with her. Um, but it's also a story that, uh, that gets told another way in book three, which is that a visual representation suddenly becomes the plot itself. Not background to the plot, but the plot itself. 
So the visual representation is also what you would see in a mirror. You see a picture of Artigal, you're wounded by Gardante, but then eventually Artigal comes to life. Artigal isn't only an image in Venus Looking Glass, but Artigal is a character of his own. Um, so that coming to life of things is, the book itself is saying, that's what's going to happen here, is that things that are simply supposed to be symbolic of some truth that's elsewhere come to life themselves and stop being symbolic. Um, you know, lots of people just think this is a, what, I'm, what I'm presenting to you is the wrong way of reading Spencer. So you may think, yeah, it's obvious why do you keep saying this. <coughs> well, for one reason, I think I keep saying it in different ways because Spencer keeps saying it in different ways and those ways are interesting. But also because what you'll find is that lots of Spencerians um, spend all their time denying that Spencer was really... Um, um, as as um, unpredictable um, and unreliable in terms of religious commitment and so on, as I think he's asserting pretty obviously that he is. And so um, it's a thing to notice. Um, all right, so let's now go to... Um, we have, we have uh, Merlin's Long Prophecy, which ends with, but yet the end is not, in the middle of a line. Um, and then let's go to Canto 4. Um, and we get another... Um, the Innocent Adonis moment. Yeah. Um, which is Britomart versus Marinel. Um... <coughs> So, again, the argument, this is page 432. Um, we get the argument of that story. Bold Marinel of Britomart is thrown on the rich strand. Fair Florimel of Arthur is long followed, but not fond. Um, there, Spencer, by messing a little bit with the, um, with the spellings, gets a rhyme where he's not um, entitled to one. That is, it's strand and found which don't rhyme, but because he gets to do his little old-fashioned pronunciation and spelling. And strand actually is a real word. It's an older version of the word strand, meaning beach. I don't think fond is. I think that's just Spencer is... He's allowed to do it now. That's how the Fairy Queen works. Um, and um, then he begins with, with a rhetorical question. Why are... Um, where are all the great chaste women of yore? Um, and go to stanza three now. Yet these, he lists them, and then he says, um, um, is worth talking about who, whom he lists. Um, Penthesalia from the Iliad, um, but he would actually know her from Virgil. I don't think she actually appears in the Iliad. Um, Deborah from the Bible, um, who kills Holofernes. Um, Camilla from the Aeneid. Um, and then, yet these and all that else had quiescence um, cannot with noble Britomart compare. As well, for glory of great valiance, as for pure chastity and virtue rare, that all her goodly deeds do well declare. Her chastity and her virtue are declared by her deeds. Well worthy stock from which the branches sprung that in late years so fair a blossom bear as thee, O queen, that is Elizabeth the matter of my song, 
whose lineage from this lady I derive along. So what he's saying is that Elizabeth descends from Britomart. Um, so she hears from Red Cross all about Artigal. Um, she departs from him. Uh, Conge took with all. That's just a French word for, for, um, for departure. Um, and uh, she went on her journey. He goes on his journey looking for more warlike deeds. And then, um, let, then we get to stanza five. But Britomart kept on her former course, looking for Artigal, pleased with what Red Cross says about him. Um, Britomart kept on her former course, nay ever doffed her arms, which means she stayed chaste um, as she chases him. Uh, nay ever doffed her arms, but all the way grew pensive through that amorous discourse by which the Red Cross Knight did erst display her lover's shape and chivalrous array. A thousand thoughts she fashioned in her mind, and in her feigning fancy did portray him such as fittest she for love could find, wise, warlike, personable, courteous, and kind. So she's only seen his image, she's gotten some information about him from Red Cross, and now she's fantasizing about what kind of guy he will be when she meets him. Um, wise, warlike, personable, courteous, and um, almost but not quite a summary of five of the first six virtues of the Fairy Queen. Um, I'm not sure Spencer's thinking about that, but it's worth noticing. Well, maybe he is. I wonder if you could get wise is Red Cross, ultimately. He learns wisdom. Warlike is Guyon, who's just kind of brutish. Um, personable would then... I don't know that that would be article in book <coughs> four or in book five. Courteous is Calidor in book six. Um, personal and kind is a little bit harder. Maybe that's really Britomart. Um, so yeah, I don't think it. I don't think it does work. So anyhow, with such self-pleasing thoughts, her wound she fed. What do you make of that line? With such self-pleasing thoughts, her wound she fed. She was wounded by looking. Yeah. Now she knows more about him, so it's sort of feeding that wound of love. Yeah. So you're you're quickly making wound rightly, but quickly making um, the idea of feeding a wound as kind of picking a scab. Um, that is that it's uh, um, <coughs> what it means is you give you give you give um, nourishment to a wound by. You nurse a wound. We, we sometimes talk about that. You nurse a grievance. You might even nurse a wound. Um, but it is an odd little turn of phrase. On the one hand, it immediately makes sense, which is that she's enjoying the wound. Um, the thoughts are self-pleasing, the thoughts that um, feed her wound. Um, Spencer isn't saying she should really stop doing that because she's making herself feel worse. That clearly is not what the line means. What the line means, rather, is something like she's enjoying the experience of being wounded by Gardante, and um, she's not letting it heal. She's Be intensifying it. She's intensifying it. She's taking pleasure in the wound. So taking pleasure in the wound, that's an interesting thing, let's say, for chastity to maybe, being, maybe to be getting wrong. In other words, if all the knights are doing something wrong, and we've already seen that in Red Cross and Guyon. We've seen um, the domain of error for all of them. 
um, the way in trying to be what they are, they sometimes get how to be what they are wrong. This might be where Britomart is doing that. Um, and there's a lot of imagery in the Fairy Queen about feeding, pasturing, oral imagery of a certain kind, which is associated with a kind of languorous sexual pleasure. That's what we saw in Acrasia, um, who is depasturing over the unconscious night. Um, that's what we see with Venus and Adonis. And now here's what Britomart is doing. Her wound she fed. Um, it's a very, very vivid line. Um, and, you know, what the take-home, of course, is that she's, that she's enjoying keeping that wound going because it's love. But if you put it in the context of Adonis, Adonis is infinitely wounded or eternally wounded. He is loved by Venus, and the image of that is the internal flow of gore from his eternal wound. And so love as a pleasurable wound is, there's a lot of imagery in book three that's about that. Now, um, not to get all symbolic on you, but love is a pleasurable, pleasurable wound. Um, what's the most obvious symbolism that that could be? So if you're, a, if you're Freud, and someone tells you that that's what they dreamt. Well, it was a wound, and I was bleeding, but it was pleasurable. What would they be talking about? Sex. Yeah, and in particular, what kind of sex? In particular, what number sexual experience would this be? Sorry? First one. First one for a woman. Yeah. Yeah, there has to be some, um, some, some reference here. Again, this isn't the, the truth of the matter. Um, for many, many reasons, it's not the truth of the matter. And again, um, it's really important to see that Spencer uses sex as a symbol rather than seeing things as symbols for sex. Um, anything can be a symbol of anything else in Spencer. Um, but there isn't, we, we shouldn't, it's really, you, we can neither refuse to see the sexual symbolism, nor think that if we do see the sexual symbolism, we now have the truth. Um, things are promiscuously symbolizing each other in Spencer. And book three is about that promiscuous um, inter-symbolic relation, so that there's a tapestry that comes to life. And the tapestry coming to life kind of represents um, Venus and Adonis. And or kind of represents Britomart and Artigal because they're kind of like Venus and Adonis. But the truth about Adonis is not that he has been, um, that he represents, let's say, female loss of virginity and, um, um, and um, bleeding attendant upon this female loss of virginity. Um, he doesn't. He represents a source of being, as we will see um, when we get to Canto Six. He represents the source of all being in this world, and making him a figure of fertility is a good symbol for what turns out to be a metaphysical or ontological description of him. Because when we get to, to Canto 6 in the Garden of Adonis, we get to 
a description of platonic forms, in fact, neoplatonic forms, that sex is just a symbol for those things. It's not, oh, it's all sex. That would be a Freudian reading of Book Three of the Fairy Queen. But um, a platonic reading of the Fairy Queen is the same thing that you get in Plato's Symposium, which is sex symbolizes something else. Sex isn't the truth. Sex is a symbol for the truth. What is the truth? Love of knowledge, or love of being, or love of immortality. That's the real truth. And sex is just a symbol for that. So again, you know, I won't keep beating this dead horse, but or this live horse, um, like Braggadocio, but um, it really is the case that <coughs> sex is a further question rather than the answer in The Fairy Queen. And we can neither refuse to ask that question because it's not an answer, nor take that question as the answer. That's important. Julian? Um, I'm just remembering um, a couple of semesters ago we looked at Beth Faulkner at Absalom Absalom, and the, there's the idea of... of virginity being kind of being defined by its loss or the activity of, yeah, of, right. of, kind of losing it. So I think yeah. kind of it's a complex situation here where you were, you're actually able to celebrate chastity or you know, or define it by its loss. So that's right. why losing the virginity is actually plays really nicely into the idea of being chaste or at least right. having once having been chaste. Yeah. Actually that's in that uh, wonderful lay that you interpreted that is exactly what it says, that the true deflowering of a flower isn't the loss nice. of its virginity, but the loss of its beauty. Exactly. By time. Right. Um, with, which will it's, with, which will it, its fate to flower. Um, so the, the true yep. deflowering is not virginity's loss, but the loss of beauty, and if you don't do all the florum things. <laughs> right. Exactly. Now, again, let's go back to the idea that Britomart is only wounded by Gardante. Um, so, and remember this is now in the context of Guyon. so here's why Guyon is important to Book 3 as a whole, or at least why the lesson of Guyon is important to Book 3, that Guyon enjoyed temptation. That's what he did wrong. He never succumbed, as Oscar Wilde said he should, another Irish Protestant writer, but he enjoyed temptation. And um, that's what I was describing as a kind of um, anorectic personality type within him, which is that he liked saying no, so he liked being in, in situations where he had to use his will to resist the temptation. Um, and that was a pleasure for him. Let's just take that as now established, as Spencer has been doing in the first two books, as an established psychological idea in the Fairy Queen. So the general point here is to say that Spencer has a lot of really new, radically new psychological observations to make about how human beings are. This is an era, just the 15, the second half of the, of the um, 16th century, is an era from Montaigne to Shakespeare of vast psychological observation being put down for the first time in literary or quasi-literary works. That's what Montaigne's essays are. They were unbelievably influential when they were translated into English. They were unbelievably influential in England. Um, uh, Shakespeare quotes from them liberally in King Lear in Florio's translation of Montaigne. Um, but it's what Shakespeare is doing. It's what Spencer is doing. Um, they're noticing things about human psychology. 
that haven't been noticed before. And so what Spencer is here noticing is there's a pleasure in resisting temptation. And it's not the pleasure of virtue. It's a pleasure which is very hard to distinguish. As a pleasure, it's very hard to distinguish it from the pleasure of succumbing to temptation. And we call, or one place where this is easiest to see is in seduction. That is, in half-resistance in what seduction and flirtation play to, which is the pleasure of saying no when you want to say yes, because, um, because um, you hope that the seduction and the temptation will be increased, that by saying no, the seducer will try harder and make the pleasure even more vivid for you. That's what the pleasure of being seduced is, I'm told. It's never right. Um, but that's what the pleasure of being seduced is. And um, that we have seen in Guyon, although it's not sex that he wants, uh, but we have seen some of that pleasure in Guyon, the pleasure of resistance, and now we're seeing it much more in Britomart, which is, it's only a mirror image. No chance of my losing my virginity. I'm totally chaste. And yet, there's a pleasure in fantasizing about this guy, feeding my wound by doing that, and that pleasure really symbolically starts losing, like the starts looking like the loss of virginity. But it's the pleasure of temptation, and that phrase, "her wound she fed," that I think that gives it to you, and it really gives it to you in a nutshell. Um, so there she is, and she starts speaking, and sitting down upon the rocky shore, bade her old squire unlace her lofty crest, so finally she's disarming. Then having viewed a while the surge's horde against the craggy cliffs did loudly roar, and in their raging circuity, that word means arrogance, in their raging circuity disdained that the fast earth affronted them so sore, and their devouring covetous restrained their ashy sigh a deep and after thus complaints, so that waves are roaring that they can't simply gobble up the land. Um, and she speaks, huge sea of sorrow and tempestuous grief wherein my feeble bark is tossed along, far from the hoped haven of relief. Why do thy cruel billows beat so strong in thy moist mountains, each on others throng, threatening to swallow up my fearful life? I'm saying nothing about the imagery here. Um, oh, do thy cruel wrath and spiteful wrong at length allay, and stint thy stormy strife, which in these troubled bowels reigns and rageth rife. Um, so she keeps talking until um, uh, stanza 11, then sighing softly sore and inly deep, she shut up all her plaint in privy grief, for her great courage would not let her weep, till that old Glauke again with sharp reprieve her to restrain and give her good relief through hope of those which Merlin had her told, that, that is, that it's all going to come. And um, so she's feeling bad, and then suddenly who shows up? Marinel. Um, and Marinel attacks her with his spear. And who wins? And Marinel, however, is very angry. Marinel, you could almost think of as a um, recapitulation of Guyon which is to say, there's all this wealth on the shore, and he, who is this person who might be stealing from him, is his, is his response to Britomart. 
So now let's, we're going to talk tomorrow, we're going to start talking about the men a little bit. I mean, we're really going to talk about the Garden of Adonis, but the men in Book 3 of The Fairy Queen. And um, Marinelle is someone who is avoiding women rather than after women. So Marinelle shows up, and he seems to do something that at first glance would look sexual. Here's my spear. But it isn't. Rather, he doesn't want women to be around. Do you remember why those who finished it? What was the prophecy that caused Marinelle to turn away from women? He would be killed by a woman. He would, or wounded, wounded. Grievously wounded unto the death by a woman. Um, so but it he was avoid. misinterpreted. It, yeah. However, <laughs> the prophecy is, avoid women was the prophecy, um, because, you, because you'll catch your death from a woman. Um, that prophecy is actually an echo of the prophecy made of Narcissus. Um, that is, um, he'll be fine as long as he doesn't come to know himself, and then that gets elaborated. Don't let women tell him who he is. Don't let women know how good-looking... Don't let women tell him how good-looking he is, because that's what's going to mess him up. Um, but then he catches sight of his own reflection in the mirror of the pool and fades away into a flower, like Adonis. So... Now we are at the level of male chastity. And um, we'll leave it there. I, now I guess the thing I want to say is here's the major plot problem in Book 3 of the Fairy Queen. Why is Florimel running through the forest to begin with? No, 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 no. Why is she in the forest to begin with? Not what, what is she fleeing from, but what is she heading towards? Does anyone know yet? She's in love with Marinelle. She's in love with Marinelle. What has she heard? Yeah, that he's in really bad shape. He's been killed or seriously wounded, and she's got to know what's happening. She can't stand it, so she's after Marino. And um, she passes who? Britomart. And Britomart says, I'm not chasing a beautiful woman. Mm -hmm. um, and then Britomart goes on her way, and after a while she gets to the seashore, and who does she meet? Marino. And what does she do? Wounds. Wounds him. And the fact that Marinel is wounded is causing Florimel to... Five days ago. Yeah. Yeah, run towards yeah. him. So it's cause and effect are reversed there. Um, it's like Greta Star Mark Trek. Yeah, it's like Star Trek. It's like, to it, 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 it's, like, it's like Terminator. It's like she looked into the mirror and there was a warping of the time-space continuum. That's exactly what Spencer was thinking. <laughs> I, I bet it was. I have such a huge urge to link Star Trek to this thing. Of course. <laughs> I would like William Shatner to recite this on Conan oh, God, no. oh, not no. him. Oh, yes. Oh, he of the t-shirt oh, Did you oh, hear him? him. Did him, you hear him do Sarah Palin? Yes. <laughs> that was yeah, the best thing ever. Why did he stop being Star Trek? Why did he write Tech Wars? Oh, 